From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Dozens of companies are working hard to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. The World Health Organization estimates it could be ready in 18 months. The owner of a company with labs in Colorado says it's not about competition. It should be comforting to know that everybody's trying to solve this problem, so it'll be solved. Then, how have the U.S. and Colorado done funding staff and training in preparation for an emergency like the one we find ourselves in? And how does the state's experience responding to natural disasters help? Also, a new program that encourages Coloradans to help Coloradans, assisting people who find their safety net they'd normally rely on during tough times isn't enough. And the medical ethics that go into deciding treatment options if hospitals get overwhelmed. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. It's hard news for graduating students and their families to hear no spring commencement. This week, CU Boulder canceled ceremonies set for May to slow the spread of the new coronavirus. Lucy Haggard is a senior studying journalism and human geography. I am disappointed, but not surprised. I totally understand from a public health standpoint why they would want to do that. Even if the spread has died down by then, I mean, I don't know, graduation is a lot of parents and a lot of grandparents and a lot of those, like, high-risk people. But at the same time, it's like commencement is a very unifying thing. It's a rite of passage. I don't know. I'm bummed out about that. Haggard says she hopes CU might consider offering a later ceremony in the fall or winter so she can experience the traditional send-off from college. It's just also uncertain. And I think you have to find ways to look forward to things. And just because commencement as a ceremony was taken away as one of those things to look forward, that doesn't mean that like you can't look forward to having a barbecue with your family and friends when everyone is healthy. I think there are ways to get around it. It's just, it won't be the one that you expected. We know every person's experience during this hard time is unique. We want to hear your story. Send us a short voice memo of what disruptions you're facing and how you're getting by to coloradomatters at CPR.org, and we might use it on air. The World Health Organization estimates it will be 18 months before a vaccine for COVID-19 is ready. That process took a step forward this week when the first human trials of a vaccine started in Seattle. Meantime, a Texas-based company with labs in Aurora, Colorado, says it's ready to test a vaccine on animals. John Price is the CEO and president of Grafx Incorporated, which is developing the vaccine. Welcome, John. Thank you. There are 35 companies and academic institutions working to create a COVID-19 vaccine, and at least four of them have started testing in animals. Where does the vaccine Grafx Incorporated created stand? Well, we've created what's called a vaccine candidate, which is what everything is. Vaccine candidate is the correct term. And all of us have vaccine candidates of, of some sort or another. Um, and, and we're prepared to go into animal testing whenever we have the funding available. The first human trials of a potential vaccine are started in Seattle. Grafx is not involved in these. They're led by the National Institutes of Health and Moderna Incorporated. How does this impact your timeline for the Grafx vaccine? It actually doesn't. If you use the benchmark that the NIH says that's actually 18 months I think all of us who are in the vaccine business are trying to decelerate 
and, and, and be aware that we can get it done quicker. That's all. Additionally, Moderna Incorporated has said they're dosing humans before they have results showing how well the vaccine works in animals. This is a step outside of the norm when companies usually do animal testing and then move to human testing. What issues could this present? Well, there's a number of them, and I think I'd rather not comment on Moderna's, but what I would suggest to you is that the the two most important things that animal testing does is it gives you an efficacy test and it gives you a safety test. So um, I have not looked at what their clinical trial pathway is, but the reason you do uh, small animal testing first is to measure the quality in that regard. And we should say here we can be confident that when vaccines come to market, they are reasonably safe. I would say beyond reasonably. Is it something that GrafX would consider doing to move to human testing before finishing animal testing or before the results of animal testing are clear? Yes, it is something that we would consider doing because our platform is a, an adviral platform that essentially is safe. There's no other way to say it. We have a, the safest vaccine possible. And we'll get into that particular type of vaccine that you're developing later. But in February, the chief of the World Health Organization said the soonest we may see a vaccine is 18 months, the end of summer 2021. Like you said, there is a hope to move that up a little bit. Watching the number of those infected rise in the stock market and turmoil, 18 months, it sounds like a long time to wait for a vaccine, but that's actually expedited. Under non-pandemic circumstances, a vaccine can take 5 to 15 years to go from development to market. Why does it usually take so long? Well, the first thing you have to expect is that you'll have a population of subjects that are much more difficult to test. So what happens first is you do a a human trial with a a, a healthy um, subjects. You never use the word patient because that means you've made them sick. Healthy subjects, and, and then you move to a different kind of patient. So what works for college people who are getting money to do a vaccine to taking care of moms and pregnant people and old people is a a large subject count. And that's why it takes so long. Now, in early January, China publicly shared the genetic sequence of the new coronavirus. How did that sequence contribute to your vaccine? Well, one of the things that we were successful at is creating a MERS vaccine, Mideast Respiratory Symptom. What happens is the nomenclature of that pathogen is very close to the pathogen COVID. So it's a lot like taking something you've already seen before and then trying to adapt a new vaccine to that. It's everything we learned from MERS, uh, we're able to apply to this current uh, vaccine. So you're able to build on this past knowledge. Most vaccines work according to one basic principle, introduce part or all of a pathogen, and the body will learn to fight the pathogen in the future. The vaccine your company has developed, it is an adenovirus-based vector vaccine. So in layman's terms, what is that? Ah, All right. So in, in layman's terms, it's essentially taking the genetic makeup of the disease itself rather than the disease. What you do, quite frankly, is you take that platform and you take the genetics of the disease, and you either have to use a live virus, a killed virus, 
or something else that causes the body to create an immune response. We use a genetic sequence of the disease, and so we don't have any virus, if you will. And we, we um, synthesize that and put it inside our platform. And so what you're doing, your body is seeing what looks like the disease but isn't the disease. Same principle at the end. The body is going to make its own immune response. The difference is how do you force that um, disease response? And what are the benefits of using this way to teach a body to fight a virus? Well, it is the preferred way to make uh, the body react. Now, our platform, the benefit is both speed uh, to get to the vaccine, cost, because ultimately when you get to production, you want to make a vaccine that's significantly cheap for the population, and, and safety and all of those things. And if you don't use a live virus or a killed virus, you're really not introducing anything that could be harmful to begin with. So this makes it additionally safe. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Once a vaccine has successfully made it through human trials, then it needs to be mass produced. That obviously takes money, facilities, employees. How would Grefx scale and produce the vaccine in the quantities needed if it makes it through human trials? Well, we have an entire plan uh, to uh, manufacture. The concept is make it cheaper, make it replicatable, make it more available. So you're absolutely right to focus on the fact that once you have the vaccine, you have to have a plan to manufacture that. And we've done that uh, quite well. And let's talk a little bit more about those finances, because you said that if your vaccine is successful, your company intends to give away the vaccine to companies that need it most first. You're a U.S.-based company. Why not prioritize the U.S. first? Well, look, what you wind up doing, of course, you present your vaccine to the country first, the country that you, you are from. It is axiomatic, however, that the, the role of a company is to do good in the world. We're beyond borders in that regard. So when we make a vaccine, when I say we give it away, we, we essentially have our costs covered. Then we work with our government for the distribution. So there's no private initiative that says, okay, uh, we'll take this and, and sell it to, to GSK or, or to Britain. What we do is we say, here's the number of doses available that we can make. We tell our government, this is what we would like to do. And then they go to the WHO and say, we own this. How do you want to distribute it? But, but more than anything else, I, I stress this with everybody, the goal of a company is not just to make money. The goal of the company is to do good. So there are a lot of vaccines that we will make that I call retail vaccines, if you will. Those you should be able to make money on hand, hand over fist. Certain vaccines that are essentially necessary for the world should not be um, a profit center. If I made an AIDS vaccine and I said, fine, but we're going to sell it for $100 a dose, shame on us. If I made an AIDS vaccine and said to the World Health Organization or first our own country and said, you guys decide how you do it, we want our costs covered, and that's it. That's how we approach the COVID-19. So 
We suggested simply that if we make it, and we can make it cheaply, and it needs to be distributed, then of course the United States should have it first, because that's money that we've, we've brought to the table. But it's, it's a world problem, so it's a world vaccine. Now, it strikes me that you say that Grafix is not anticipating making a lot of money on the vaccine if it is successful. And there are 35 other companies and academic institutions working on this. So it does seem somewhat like a competition. Can you square those things for me? I can't um, because because everybody tries to make it an arms race. We need the vaccine. So I don't view Moderna as my competition. I view them as a scientific collaborator without um, without paper. What I what they do, I learn from. So what I can tell you is, motive should be uh, to to solve a world problem, and then from that solving of the world problem, we should be able to work together. So while while the financial press would like to make a a battle out of it, um, Sanofi or GSK or Moderna or any of the other 35 companies, I view as friendly competition, if you will, not for no other reason that we need vaccines. So GrafX takes a broader view. Um, they're going to solve the world problem, and, and congratulations. We, I'm fine if I'm second to the table or third at the table. Probably not fine if I'm 35th at the table because I think my scientists here based in Colorado are the smartest people in the world. So I can't imagine I'd be the 35th. But if somebody's been funded by the government and we haven't and we're using our own nickel so it takes us a little bit longer, that's fine. Um, We just want vaccines made and brought into the universe. In the end, does only one vaccine rise to the top? No, I, I don't believe that. In the end a number of vaccines will be on the market. And if you think about seasonal flu, uh, there's five, six uh, companies that make seasonal flu. Does it matter to you when you go to uh, your your doctor or, or Walmart um, to get a, a flu shot? Do you ask yourself, well, is this one made by Grefx or is this one made by um, GSK? What matters is, does it work? So perhaps we should take some comfort in that so many people are working on this issue. I do. I do. And, and so should, the, so should the, your, your audience. It, it should be comforting to know that everybody's trying to solve this problem. And, and um, so it'll be solved. I have no doubt. John, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'm really appreciative of the opportunity. Thank you. John Price is co-founder and president of Houston-based Grefx Incorporated, a biotech company with labs in Aurora that's working on a vaccine for COVID-19. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News is here to deliver news that's meaningful to your life. I'm news director Rachel Estabrook, and I can hardly think of a time when that would be more important than it is right now. With unprecedented disruptions to people's financial, educational, and personal lives, CPR News is your companion on the radio, online, and on social media. Sign up for our newsletter, The Lookout, and keep tuning in for the latest on what efforts to contain the coronavirus mean for your life and how prepared Colorado is for the next phase of this challenge. Thanks for being with us here on CPR News.
Lots of talk these last few weeks about flattening the curve, trying to keep the number of cases of COVID-19 down so the healthcare system can keep up with the demand. Public health agencies play a large role monitoring the situation, providing data and guidance and collaboration. Glenn Mays is an expert in emergency preparedness at the Colorado School of Public Health. Welcome to the program, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Let's get some clarity. During a pandemic like this, what are public health agencies' roles as compared to, say, hospitals or clinics? Yeah, public health agencies are really on the front lines of epidemic response. They are the workers doing the testing, uh, doing the the contact investigation, tracing uh, who's been exposed, uh, and then implementing the policies and, and procedures to contain the outbreak. And public health funding is kind of a big idea. It's hard to get our minds around. In concrete terms, what is it governments spend money on when they fund public health preparedness? Yes. Well, they spend money on having some dedicated staff uh, who are trained in the specifics of how to do emergency response activities. Uh, We are paying for planning, detailed planning, not just among public health agencies, but among all the other organizations that need to play a role. Uh, Healthcare organizations, hospitals, health insurers, community-based organizations, and and others. And we're playing for information and surveillance systems for specialized laboratory testing capabilities, all of those components. And those are all the sorts of things that governments would fund ahead of an outbreak like we're seeing. We're already seeing that some hospitals say that they have shortages of tests for COVID-19 and of personal protective equipment like masks. Is that a failure of public health preparedness? It certainly shows weaknesses and the limits of our public health preparedness systems. And um, uh, we, we tend to, uh, to um, often delay uh, investing in things that are in, in contingencies that may, may not be immediate in front of us. And preparedness, we're seeing that, that now. We've, uh, we have historically underinvested and underprepared as a nation for these kinds of events. And tell us a little bit more about this. But first, in the U.S., who mostly puts money toward public health? Is it the federal government, state governments, or maybe even local governments? Yeah, looking overall, the public health system, actually, the federal government is kind of a minority investor. Uh, the majority, two-thirds to three-quarters of the funding that flows into governmental public health comes from state and local governments. Uh, and that uh, generates some of the large inequities that we see in public health capacity across the country. Richer places can afford to invest more. And you said that historically public health is underfunded overall. Tell me a little bit more about why that might be. Yeah, as a nation, we spend only about 3% of the total spending that we invest in our health and healthcare systems across the U.S. go to public health. Um, and uh, again, partly it's because of how we finance public health, uh, largely depending on local and state governments to invest, uh, who often are constrained and have many other competing uh, um, needs for, for resources. Um, and it's also, I think, in, in general, the public health activities that we're investing in are less visible to the public. It's less apparent that we need these capacities. And it's easier to get away uh, from, uh, to get away with kind of underinvesting because we don't see immediate consequences from underspending on public health. And is there a way of giving us a picture of how underfunded public health preparedness has been over time? Well, yeah. So we we did actually some estimates uh, about four years ago that uh, that estimated uh, we were under uh, under investing in public health as a nation to the tune of a, of about five million five billion dollars a year. 
Um, and that, again, those are now estimates about, about four years old. And so uh, as a result of that, we had on, only about two-thirds of the public health capacity that we need across the U.S. Uh, to, for um, um, maintaining a strong public health system. And like you said, if state and local governments are funding public health, that means there are going to be big differences in how much they can spend, I imagine, especially between rural and urban areas. What does that look like here in Colorado? Yeah. So overall, overall, Colorado has done a, a good job compared to lots of other places around the country in maintaining a strong public health infrastructure uh, and maintaining the, the resources there. But but even even so, we do see large geographic disparities in public health capacity, particularly across that rural urban divide. Rural uh, communities have smaller tax bases, just fewer resources to invest. And it's difficult to attract specialized staffing into those areas as well. And so we do have less capacity in rural areas for for public health protections. And how does that difference in public health funding between rural and urban areas affect the services that are available now? And what might we expect that to look like in the days ahead? Yeah, well, it cer- certainly means that our ability to test uh, for uh, for threats like the uh, novel coronavirus is much more limited in, in rural areas. We've got much fewer staff to do the contact uh, tracing to uh, to do uh, really targeted isolation strategies uh, in, in our rural areas. Um, and so that, that can be a big problem. We've got a widespread outbreak like what we're, we're dealing with here with, with coronavirus. And contact tracing is when we know that somebody has coronavirus, tracing all the people that they maybe have been in contact in recent days. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's heavily, uh, it's labor intensive work. You got to have people out there in the field uh, tra- tracking down each of those individuals uh, and making sure that they're, they're self-isolated. But you said that overall, Colorado has done a better job than many places around the nation. What makes you say that, investing in fund, public health funding? Yeah, so we, we create this National Health Security Preparedness Index, which measures preparedness capabilities around the country. And Colorado is one of the top states in that overall index. Uh, about 120 measures go into that index. Colorado has strengths in the area of surveillance. We've got a strong public health lab with lots of capabilities there. Uh, despite the delays in testing that we've seen around coronavirus, we do have strong capabilities in testing and surveillance. Uh, we also have relative, we have, we do really well with, um, with planning for preparedness activities. We've done a great job of getting hospitals and uh, other uh, stakeholders to engage in preparedness planning over the years. And so we've got strong plans to rely on now. And Colorado's public health sector has experience dealing with natural disasters as well. I'm thinking fires, snowstorms, and that's actually helpful in times like this, right? Absolutely. Colorado has had a lot of experience in dealing with large-scale events that can threaten health, both natural disasters and industrial accidents and uh, other kinds of exposures. And so uh, those are uh, that we have learned from experience how to, uh, how to deal with emergencies like this. And how do you see that playing out right now, those sorts of muscles that we have developed that we're able to flex? Probably the greatest area is in the the the, uh, the networks that exist around preparedness planning. Uh, all uh, we have strong regional preparedness coalitions that exist around the state. Uh, all of our hospitals across the state are engaged in those preparedness networks. Uh, uh, they are uh, their their plans are, are coordinated. They're connected with public health agencies and other and emergency medical service providers and others. Uh, those those coalitions are going to be really important as we respond to the surge in demand for care. Glenn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you.
the safety net people rely on in bad times when people are sick or out of work, they've been stretched to the breaking point by coronavirus. In Colorado, private donors are stepping in. A new program called Help Colorado Now has raised almost $3 million. Roxanne White is co-chair of the effort. Roxanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be talking to you all and helping reach Colorado. We're going to talk in a minute about the mechanics of this, how the money will be channeled to people in need. But give me an example of a person, an individual that you'd envision being helped. Well, on the front lines right now, we have many people today, particularly as it's snowing in Colorado, who are experiencing homelessness and they need to be inside and in our shelters. And so That's an example on one end. Um, We have many people in rural Colorado who need um, access to more testing. We're working on that as well. So there are a lot of different ways that this coronavirus obviously is affecting everyone, and it's not just being sick. The website is helpcoloradonow.org. You've outlined three areas where money is going to be spent. The first is prevention. Where will that money go? So right now, um, as your previous um, interviewee was talking about, we need to prevent the further spread. And so that is working with low-income nursing homes. That's working on testing. That is working with um, high-risk communities, um, such as people who are um, homeless or elderly seniors who are alone um, and in need of support to not be infected. And then there's impact. Tell me what that means. We already are starting to see impact happening in Colorado um, with the immense number of people in, for instance, the restaurant industry and in other places that have been laid off. And so um, working to make certain that we um, have supports as not for individuals, but as organizations are helping them. We know people are going to need some eviction assistance through organizations. We know that we have people right now who need early childhood um, care particularly with our schools closed, so that they can go to work, particularly our first responders and our medical personnel. The final category is recovery. How do you see that money being used? You know, um, we will get to recovery. Um, We have a long way to go still, but we will get to recovery. And we see that um, going to help small businesses. We see that going to help um, people get back to jobs um, and back to work. So this idea that once restaurants are able to reopen and people are able to gather again in larger groups, that there will need to be some recovery and this money hopefully will help. Let's be clear that that we can get them to a place of reopening. Exactly. So I want to be clear that this money is not going out to individuals directly. It's going to be channeled through community organizations and they'll set the criteria for who gets it. But can you possibly raise money to meet all these needs? We um, know that we have a lot of gaps, and the only way we can raise money to fill those gaps is if we do it in a coordinated way. And so Governor Polis's vision was to set up a coordinating group for around the state to make certain we leverage every possible dollar. And that's why we're coming together as a community to do this with our foundations, with our corporate funders, with individuals, with United Ways in our 12 um, regions of the state to make certain that we know the gaps throughout the state And together, we leverage every dollar possible. If people go to the website, they'll also see a call for volunteers. What kind of help are you looking for? 
Great. Thank you so much for asking, because some people can give financially, um, and thank you to everyone who's already doing that. We had 900 people this week already give um, through the website, financial donations. You can also volunteer at food banks. There's places for um, disaster volunteers, and as the governor said yesterday, we continue to have ongoing medical needs um, not related to COVID, where we need blood volunteers um, and blood donors, and that's perfectly safe for people to do. Um, So those are some options for folks. And in the few seconds that we have left, how much do you hope to raise? Well, we don't know where all this virus is going to take us, but we hope to be um, at five million by the end of this week and moving towards 10 million um, by the end of um, the next couple of weeks um, as the virus continues to spread. So we will keep fundraising as we um, work through this as a community until we get to a place of recovery. Roxanne, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Roxanne White is co-chair of Help Colorado Now, an organization launched Wednesday by Governor Jared Polis to raise donations and find volunteers to help fight against coronavirus. Now, the ethics of the coronavirus and healthcare. You may be familiar with the hypothetical story of a train barreling toward five people. The conductor can save the bystanders by derailing the train, but at the cost of a single life. How is that decision made? The real-life equivalent of that scenario is playing out in other countries around the world as healthcare professionals struggle to rein in the virus. Here's Governor Jared Polis speaking at a news conference last Friday. The contagion is here. People will get the virus. In fact, many Coloradans will get this virus, and for many, it will have mild or negligible symptoms. Uh, What we're concerned about now is that first trajectory, which is what we're seeing in, in Italy, which is where we don't have enough hospital beds, enough ventilators, where doctors and nurses are forced to triage and provide ventilators to those who have the best chance of survival. That's a horrific scenario that we do not want to occur in Colorado. What is the answer for Colorado? Dr. Matthew Winia is the director of the Center of Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Winia, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. First, you're joining us by phone as you drive back to Colorado, and you're actually wearing a mask right now. Tell us a little bit about your situation. I got a call from my son saying he had come down with fever and a cough. And, uh, you know, he's a young young guy with no medical conditions, so I think this is mild and, and he'll be just fine and he will not be tested because he doesn't meet the criteria for being tested. But we are just making the assumption that he may have been exposed and may have it. So we are both wearing masks as we drive back from Madison, Wisconsin. So out of an abundance of caution, how are you and your family doing? Uh, we're doing fine. I mean, everyone uh, else remains healthy, and we've got the ability in our house to sort of sequester a room so that, so that you know he can stay comfortable and we can all stay safe, hopefully. The situation. I think, you know, I should say, by the way, um, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment over the weekend essentially issued guidance saying that the assumption at this point should be that anyone in healthcare may already have been exposed. And so uh, we're assuming that health professionals, just because we see sick people all the time, may have been exposed to this over the last couple of weeks. And we are asking all of the health professionals to wear masks while in clinical settings, even if they feel fine. And that is not so much to protect them, but to protect others if they start to come down with symptoms while they're at work or if they may be contagious before they have symptoms. 
to continue to try to tamp down that spread. Yeah, that's the idea. We've really moved beyond the idea that we could catch every single person with this contagious illness and sequester them and keep track of every single one. And we're moving towards the mitigation type strategies where we assume that this is out in the community. And our main task is to prevent the people who already have it from spreading it even further. Now, as we move into this conversation about ethics, I'd like to emphasize that some of the situations we'll be discussing are decidedly worst-case scenarios. We are not trying to foster panic amongst our listeners, but clearly, given events like those in Italy, where cases have grown exponentially, overwhelming medical facilities, preparedness is a very important aspect of this story. We're now seeing reports calculating numbers with regards to coronavirus. For example, a study from Johns Hopkins estimates that there are about 46,000 ICU beds in the U.S., the study adds that there is a clear mismatch between demand and resources. That's because, according to the Harvard Business Review, as many as 2.9 million Americans might need ICU care. Already we know there's a shortage of test kits for the virus. How does healthcare find a solution to numbers like that? Yeah, well, I think the the things we're trying to do now, and I'm glad you started out by saying we're not there yet. We are, you know, not at capacity. We have some spare room, but that's today. And it would be irresponsible at this point not to start planning for worst-case scenarios. And that planning really takes two forms. One is how can we expand our existing capacity? How can we change the way that we do business to try and take care of more people, assuming there's going to be a very large surge of patients needing intensive care or hospital-level care. And so our, our first task is to try and avoid any need to move to triage-type scenarios, right? So we're not there yet, and our task at the moment is to try and avoid that, to find ways to take care of people that use, you know, resources that we don't normally need to call upon, like retirees, using rooms in our hospitals that we might normally not use for patient care, but now we do, or doubling up people in rooms. We're talking about, you know, if we were to get a very large surge of patients, all of whom had the COVID-19 illness, could we put them all in one area of the hospital so that we could conserve resources in taking care of them as a cohort instead of individually. So there are many, many decisions being made right now in an effort to avoid ever needing to move into a triage-type scenario where you're actually having to tell people, look, we don't have enough of this for everyone. We're going to have to decide who gets it and who doesn't. Tell me a little bit more about this concept of triage. What does it mean about who gets treated first? People are most vulnerable, say the elderly or those who have the greatest likelihood of recovery. Yeah, so the idea of triage is to sort people according to the likelihood that they would get the most benefit, that the greatest good would be achieved by devoting resources to that person instead of to someone else. So triage really only arises um, as a need at a moment when it is unavoidable, right? Triage isn't a decision that you make. Let's choose to do triage. Triage is forced upon you. 
because it's a circumstance where there are two or more people who need the same resource, and that resource cannot be split up and used by all of them. So you have to make a decision about who's going to get it. So these are forced choices. And we are starting to think through, okay, if we were in a circumstance where we had a forced choice and we have, you know, one thing and two or more people need it, how would we decide which of those people would get that? And as you suggested, the general rule is that it goes to the person who most needs it and is most likely to survive if they get it and most likely to die if they don't get it. And it's not an easy calculation. There's not a mathematical formula for this. Um, we don't know enough about this virus to really make solid calculations. So all of these decisions, if they had to be made, would be subject to medical judgment, um, which is kind of an unavoidable circumstance because uh, of the way this virus is playing out. And I think, you know, we're in the midst right now of talking about this, not just at individual hospitals, but across the whole state, because one of the things that's very important if we came to this type of circumstance is that we not make triage decisions in one hospital when actually there's a ventilator available, you know, six blocks away at a different hospital. So these really, to be ethically defensible, they really have to be spread across a population and you need to have very good what we call situational awareness of where the resources are, what's really available to you potentially before you start making these kinds of decisions. And as we've said, we are not here yet in the United States, and these are clearly no. very tough decisions. Yeah, we are not here yet, and our hope is that through contingency planning, we never have to get there. But as you mentioned at the outset, if we had you know a million people, all of whom needed intensive care, and we've got forty or fifty thousand intensive care beds, we might be able to bump that up, you know, through putting multiple people in one room and so on to a hundred thousand beds. But that still leaves a tremendous shortage for the potential need in a worst case scenario. And obviously that's a worst case scenario, so we we're trying to avoid those worst case scenarios. That's why we're asking people to stay home. That's why we're doing all the social distancing measures is to avoid having that sudden surge of very sick people all showing up at one time. But it would again, it would be irresponsible not to start planning for a worst case, even as we hope that we don't get there. What about the response in some situations like a worker shortage or an ICU that's overflowing? Take us inside the room and help us understand how those decisions are made to deal with those situations. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's sometimes discussed as though the main problem is that we don't have enough ventilators, uh, for example. But I expect that one of the resources we would run out of maybe before we ran out of ventilators is the staff who know how to operate ventilators um, because that's a scarce resource as well. You need respiratory therapy, you need anesthesia, you need people who know how to run vents. These are very complex e equipment. Um, you can't just you know put someone on a ventilator and walk away and, and go tend to someone else. So we are thinking very carefully about how to spread our respiratory therapy staff around the different hospitals you know, if necessary, they will have to triage what work they do. So some of the normal tasks that they might do, 
they might not be able to do if we get into a real crunch time where we need them to manage ventilators uh, you know, much more intensively than they normally do. They might not be able to do pulmonary function tests, and they might not be able to do induced sputums, and they might not be able to do some of the other more elective type things or things that you could have someone else do instead of a respiratory therapist. I imagine that these were conversations the medical community was having during SARS, the H1N1 virus, swine flu. Have we just forgotten about responses to those situations, or is this an entirely different animal? Uh, No, but I think by contrast, we have not only not forgotten, but we have a lot of pre-existing guidance and ideas that we can bring forward now because of the SARS and the H1N1 and the Ebola response. Each of these events, and, and, you know, this won't be the last one, each of these events where there's a very large outbreak of a, you know, pretty scary illness, we learn something new, and that gets into the literature and influences subsequent decision-making. And I think, you know, one of the things you're seeing today that we didn't see for the SARS epidemic is this very broad preparedness push in advance of being in a circumstance where there's, you know, a really overwhelming surge of patients. The reason we're taking this so seriously in part is because of the SARS and because of the H1N1 preparation and because of the Ebola experience. So we learn from these prior events, and I expect there will be many things we learn from this event as well. Now, obviously, people need access to hospitals for other conditions as well. What could coronavirus mean for people who have a heart attack or need intensive treatment, say, for cancer? Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, These types of events um, do not just affect the people who develop this particular illness. They affect the entire system. And if there are, you know, three, you know, right now today, 90% of intensive care unit beds nationwide are are occupied by people who don't have coronavirus. So if we have a sudden, right, it's not like we have 50 or 100,000 ICU beds that are open and waiting for coronavirus patients. These are beds that are, for the most part, already full of people who need them. So the types of decisions that would need to be made if we had a sudden surge of additional patients on top of the usual patients we already see, we would actually need to put all of those patients into the same pool in terms of uh, looking towards who would most benefit, who's most likely to survive if and only if they receive this ventilator or ECMO machine or whatever the high-tech intervention is that might go into shortage. So I think the takeaway is that these are very tough decisions, but even ahead of the decisions needing to be made, there are some very thoughtful conversations already happening in the medical community. There are uh, an, an, an incredible number of such conversations going on right now. I think every hospital in the country is now starting to think ahead about this and say, what if? Uh, we were to suddenly have 50 or 100 people show up, all of whom needed critical care, and our hospital has X number of beds. How many additional beds could we squeeze in? How could we cohort patients? How could we do all of these contingency plans to try and avoid the need of actually making triage decisions? And also, they are starting to now think about 
And if we were overrun even beyond our contingency plans, how would we make triage decisions? And what would be ethically defendable ways of making those decisions that would not put people with disabilities at particular risk, that would not put elderly people at particular risk, you know, that would make these decisions based on criteria that uh, that the public would be more likely to to buy into and say, yes, that's a fair way to do this when it's actually a Sophie's choice, right, where someone is going to die and and it's your task to decide who that's going to be. Dr. Winnie, I want to thank you so much for having this conversation. Yeah, it's a hard conversation, but as you say, it's one that's taking place all over the country right now and for good reason. Have a safe drive back to Colorado. Thank you very much. Dr. Matthew Winia is the director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. He joined us to discuss some of the ethical questions healthcare professionals and facilities face in the wake of the coronavirus. Now, a break from coronavirus. Let me introduce you to Walter. He's ancient, and he's mostly wrapped in plaster. But for Craig, a town in northwest Colorado, he's a potential hero. CPR's Sam Brash reports. Walter lives in the bowels of Colorado Northwestern Community College. I take an elevator down to meet him. It descends into a wide concrete room, full of students armed with brushes and the tiniest little hammers. And so that's what we're at right now is bits and pieces. Is that bone? Is that rock? Is that bone? Is that rock? This is Liz Johnson. Science faculty here. And the head of the school's paleontology program. So um, our students get to prep these bones. They get to work with these bones as opposed to waiting until they're seniors in college or maybe even masters or PhDs. We've had PhD students come with us who have never been out in the field before, and they are being taught by a 200-level student. The coal industry has been Craig's economic base for decades, but it's drying up. Johnson hopes her program could draw students and maybe even help some workers trade fossil fuels for fossils. Paleontology is by no means going to be an economic savior, right? So it's one piece to the puzzle. But it's a piece the whole community has rallied behind. The area around Craig is thick with fossils, and the college would love to make it a paleontology hotspot. Those conversations started years ago, when one of Johnson's former colleagues went fossil hunting with their dog, also named Walter. Yeah. So this this is a dinosaur that was named after a dog. Correct. A Great Dane. Johnson visited the specimen and saw it was a massive hadrosaur, better known as a duck-billed dinosaur. She realized it could kickstart a paleontology program. But it turns out you can't just pick up a dinosaur and keep it. She had to get permission from the federal government. A lot of negotiation paperwork. Get her school to build the right kind of space. No pressurized water mains anywhere above. No UV light coming in. And then the hardest part. She actually had to move Walter's bones. They were too heavy. We tried to get them up out of the quarry and up over the cliff. The road was, you know, maybe within sight, but vertical issues. You couldn't even get a car down there. So the school found some help. 
a state fire crew had a spare helicopter and agreed to give Walter a lift on a 100-foot cable. And I'm just like, please be in one piece, please be in one piece. I, I've never been more nervous. But Walter made it out of the quarry and into the community college basement. That's where 18-year-old Gabriel Navolo loves to spend his time, chipping away at the plaster casing. It's like Christmas morning every time. You know, every little piece that you break apart gives you a bigger picture of the puzzle you're trying to uncover. Navolo grew up in New York. He heard about the community college program through a Facebook post. I said, this is exactly what I want to do. How fast can I get in? Did you ever think about Craig, Colorado? Nope. Literally never heard of it before. Other students have come from Texas, Florida, Oklahoma, and local officials hope the program could be an economic engine for the town, especially now that nearby coal mines and a power plant are set to close before 2030. They want to build the program a small museum to house specimens like Walter and attract tourists. Johnson loves the idea, but she says it won't be easy. I want to teach people the behind-the-scenes aspect, because if they know what happens here, then they understand it takes time. They understand how much money it's going to take. It'll happen, she says, through the same kind of work she demands from her students. Slow, careful cooperation to reveal Walter and maybe a future for Craig. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. See pictures of Walter and the Dino Lab at CPR.org. And that's it for Colorado Matters. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lill, and you're with CPR News.